0: Well, thanks. It's great to be with you. Great to be back in Seaford and uh, to enjoy the fellowship that's here. How super to be in this great new place. Uh, Lovely smell of new, fresh wood, I felt, as I came in, which is nice. Uh, I think I may have been in this building many years ago, but I'm not sure that I was. But it looks fresh and it feels good. And it's great to fill it out already, filling it out. And a great pleasure to be with you. I have brought a few books that you'll find on the table at the back. I'd like to mention that the uh, message this morning about Romans will be emphasizing the place of the grace of God. And I just want to commend to you God's lavish grace. Uh, I'm just thrilled it's just been uh, translated into many languages and of letters from people saying it was life-changing. So if you've not had a chance to read that, I commend that to you. Um, interestingly, uh, No Well-Worn Paths is the story uh, of New Frontiers, really. Lots of people asking these days, how did it get started? Well, much of it started here, uh, in this town. So, if you haven't had a chance to read that, it's there. I saw it on Amazon, because it kind of went out of print for a while, and on Amazon, 15 pounds, but for you, 4 pounds 99. <laughs> okay, so special price. And then just last of all, this is the most recent thing I've done, um, life tastes better. Uh, this is really a kind of gospel book. I think uh, anyone could be blessed by it, but it's especially written with a view to handing on to someone. Maybe you've had a chance to witness to, you've had a chance to share your faith with. And sometimes we kind of run out. We think, oh, I wish I'd have said it clearer. I wish I'd have taken more advantage of it, or something. You you've had a good chat and say, Hey, take this. Friend of mine wrote this story, and. Uh, uh, we, we, Wendy and I, my wife and I bumped into a lady uh, having a pub lunch recently and she was really interested in the gospel. She was very keen to take it. Our neighbor's taken it. Uh, and it's only one pound 50. So it's cheaper than a birthday card. So <laughs> you might want to have two or three in your handbag for, and pray, God, let me meet someone today. Let there be a, an opportunity and uh, just to pass on that, commit this to you. And this, uh. So those are on the table. Please take advantage of those. Uh, at the end, and we're turning to the book of Romans, which is where I understand you are, and uh, I'm gonna read uh, from, uh, let me see, from about verse 15, okay, I'll read from verse 15 of Romans and chapter five. Great book to read, a great epistle, probably one could say the most important epistle, arguably, in the New Testament, where Paul sets out the gospel more explicitly, uh, perhaps than anywhere else terrific, wonderful book. Uh, I'm reading from the NASB, so it may vary if, with yours if um, you may have a different translation, but it won't be very, won't be very different. Okay, Romans uh, chapter 5 uh, from verse 15, and Paul is comparing and contrasting the results of Adam's disobedience and Christ's Obedience and saying the outcome is phenomenal. It's totally life-changing. Either you're in Adam and his disobedience or you're in Christ, and the result of his obedience changes everything for us. So Romans 5:15 to the end of the chapter. But the free gift is not like the transgression. In other words, what Jesus did and what, Satan did, uh, what Adam did. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died... Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounds to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For If by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. I think maybe we'll stop there. Father, thank you so much for your presence with us. Thank you for your worthiness, Lord, that we have gladly sung of, your faithfulness, Lord, that we reckon on it, we rest in it, we commit ourselves to it, the faithfulness of God. And Father, we we pray right now, please, for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Lord, come, Holy Spirit, please lead us into truth. Let the truth do us good, we pray, Father. Glorify your great name in our lives. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name amen amen so this uh, passage from romans is talking about the contrast of what happened when adam rebelled when adam refused to believe god instead lived, believed the lie of satan and and turned the whole human race into sinners from then on the bible calls us children of disobedience we are the children of if you like his disobedience which characterizes us It's in our uh, DNA. We become sinners because of what Adam did. It's all to do with what he did. And then this wonderful, it talks about an act of righteousness, but really it talks about, it's really speaking of a beautiful, perfect, innocent life, this life of Christ, which makes us righteous and takes away all the condemnation, takes away all the guilt, all the shame, and completely transforms our life. I'd like to just focus in on that phrase at the end of verse 17, that we reign in life through this abundance of grace. We reign in life. It's a vivid phrase. It's really talking about being on top, uh, not being under things, not being under the circumstances, not feeling I'm at the mercy of events that I just get thrown around. Reigning is a very vivid kind of expression. We reign in life. We've been seeing about the king who reigns. He's enthroned. He's got all authority, all power. And, and Paul uses this phrase, we reign in life. And, and it's not the only phrase that talks like that. The Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not just conquerors. We're more than, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, it says this, he always leads us in his triumph, always leads us in his triumph. Now these are a very sort of vivid phrases, really. You're more than a conqueror, always in triumph, reigning in life. You think, hmm, yeah, wouldn't it be great? Because uh, sometimes we think, if only. Something in our hearts says, yes, that's what I was called to. I was called to reign. I was called to kind of be on top. I was called to be more than a conqueror. Uh, and yet often we feel... Lord, sorry, it's not really like that. And particularly this time of the year, when we, we come to the end of the year, I, I got a new diary yesterday. Uh, I just got it through Amazon. I got my new diary, and uh, not one messed up page yet. And uh, I look back on last year, I think, mm, sorry, Lord, it wasn't exactly what I had hoped for. And we often feel like that. Lord, I'm sorry, I wish I'd done better, uh, and I haven't messed up a page yet yet. Uh, now I've got a new opportunity, a new start. And it's sometimes, times like that when we say, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to reign in life? How, how shall I do it? And, uh, and, and sometimes it's, it's moments like this when you get stirred up. It maybe happens when you go to a conference. You know, you put everything else aside, and you go, I'm going to attend a conference. And you, you really give yourself to the Word. You give yourself to being there, and you kind of feel God calling you, and you're from now on, I'm going to do better. From now on, the new year starting. I'm going to reign in life. And very often, we, we don't quite read the verse. We don't read what it says. And we think, right, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, mm, let me think, I'm going to set back my alarm clock. I'm going to get up earlier and pray longer. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to read my whole Bible through. This coming year, I'm going to read it. All, I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, let me think. That's 1,200 pages. Right, so That's that's... Uh, how many pages am I, I? have to read like maybe eight or nine pages a day. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I met a guy who said, I set myself to witness to one person every day. I'm going to reign in life. If I can take these rules uh, uh, and keep them, I'll reign in life. And so this rule, he, he, I'm going to witness to one person every day. And he told me, he was, going to, he was going to bed, and he's just his head was going on the pillow. He thought, oh, I've not witnessed to anybody today. So he got dressed, put his clothes on, ran out. This is a guy called Mike Bickle in America. You may have heard of him. He told me this. He said, I got up, I ran the streets, and I tried to find someone to witness to because this is one of the rules I set myself. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm keeping my reading going. I'm, I've got up early, but I had not done my uh, witnessing. Uh, and so he's, if I can keep these rules, I'll reign in life. But you know, they've failed to see what it says in the verse we just read. No, those who receive the abundance of grace, And the free gift of righteousness. They're the ones who reign in life. But we very often think, no, if I can only keep the rules, I can only keep the rules, then I'll do it. Paul Paul says here in Galatians, well, he says in Galatians, you who be justified by law have fallen from, from grace. Now, funny, if we ever use that phrase, fallen from grace, we tend to use it for people who, you know, they don't come to church anymore. You know, fallen from grace. It's actually been borrowed out It's used in all kinds of secular content, I've fallen from grace. But when Paul said it, what he meant was this, you have fallen from grace into rule keeping. You've fallen into laws, you've fallen into rules. Uh, And why did he say that to the Galatian church? Well, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he wrote very similar to what he's writing here. And what happened at Galatia was this, Paul had been there, he started a new church there were wonderful things happening. You can read about signs and wonders and gifts of the Spirit. God's manifestly there. It's a healthy, lively church. And then Paul moves on. He's an apostle. He goes to do it again in another town. And when he's gone, the, the Judaizers, the Bible calls them, these, these Judaizers move in behind him. Well, who are Judaizers? Well, they're probably Christians with probably a Jewish background and they've embraced the gospel, but they're still confusing old and new covenants. And so they come in behind, and they, and they, say, they say to the, uh, the Christians in Galatia, hey, well done, you've received our Messiah. Uh, our Bibles, our Old Testament prophets told us that Gentiles would also receive our Messiah. Welcome, welcome, this is great. So glad you've taken him on board. Um, but we've known him for, for centuries, really if you really want to keep him happy, uh, there are some things you need to take on board. I mean, you must keep the feast days, and, and you shouldn't eat that kind of food, and actually you should get circumcised. And they're, they're, they're kind of adding things, and Paul hears about this and, and, and writes to them and says, you fools, you foolish Galatians, what's happening? What are you doing? Are you, you're trying to make perfect what is already perfect. You're trying to add to what Jesus did on the cross in order to bring it complete. And it's utterly complete anyway. So it's absolutely furious. And then he says this sin won't have dominion over you because you're not under law, you're under grace. He's teaching them, as it does here in Romans. It says, look, the law was added, but it was only added briefly. It was only added to, uh, 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 to uh, show how sinful sin is. It cannot actually save you. It cannot actually transform you from the inside. And so he said, no, no, you're not under law. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Christians not under law? I thought Jesus said the law would never pass away. How come Paul says we're not under law? I wonder if I had a you know, show of hands this morning, if I said, right, we're going to have a show of hands this morning. How many here believe that Christians are under the law? Or how many Christians here believe that Christians are not under the law? I think if I was going to ask for a show of hands, we, you know, we might be thinking, um, um, what's Jez doing? Oh, yeah, hold on. Uh, <laughs> Because we're not quite sure where we are, and it's, it's very important we know where we are, so we get the full power of this 17th verse, that we reign in life through the abundance of grace. It's ever so important we understand what it's said. So I just want to... OK, I'll show you right now. We'll get OK, we'll get into it. OK. Okay, we'll try and help you. We'll try and help you. i tell you what we'll do. I think, I think Paul puts it most succinctly in the seventh chapter. Okay, so I'm going to turn over to Romans chapter 7. Turn over to Romans chapter 7. And we we'll just read half a dozen verses. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm re- writing to those who know the law that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. That sounds pretty final, doesn't it? The law has jurisdiction. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, what God gave initially to Israel, that's what the law is, madam. That's what the law is. It's what God spoke, what God's holy requirement. I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law has jurisdiction authority, jurisdiction, over a person as long as he lives. Then he uses an interesting illustration. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband's living, she's joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 6, now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. So the imagery Paul is using in these verses is one of marriage. He says like the law is our husband. That's the imagery helping us to see our relationship. The law is like an overbearing, if you like, husband, one who has requirements, you shall not do this, you shall not do this, that's how the law speaks to us, this is God's holy requirement, he has authority over us, we are married, this is what this verse is saying, he is our husband, as it were, he speaks authoritatively into our lives. These are his holy requirements. And you can't really argue because they're good laws they're holy and righteous and true. They're good laws. You can't argue with God's holy law. And so you think, yeah, I'm under this authority. Now, another thing we just need to remember this, and I'll come back to it later, but just to feed it in, the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. His name, Satan, means accuser. It means accuser. He is constantly saying, you're no good. Call yourself a Christian What do you think you are? And it bombards your mind. It's no good thinking, I won't go where Satan is. I won't go downtown. No, Satan is around us. He accuses us. He tells us things. And they're usually putting us down. trying to get your head down. He's the accuser. He keeps trying to condemn us. That's the battle that we often have to fight. And reigning in life has to do with getting above that. He's the accuser. So we'll come back to that later, but we are here seen as the the one married to the law, and the law has authority over us. He's making these requirements of us. He's like a husband saying, this is what we must do. You can't argue with him because he's right, but he never never lifts a finger to help. I don't want to see too many wives saying, I think maybe he's talking about you, dear. Uh, (laughs) So he tells you what you're supposed to do. He can't argue because he's right, but he he never lifts a finger to help. And Jesus says this, the law will never pass away. All right, so you are permanently married to a fault-finding, perfect husband who never helps you. And he's never going to die. Isn't that great? It's wonderful. And then Paul, amazingly, in verse 4, kind of turns it on its head in an unexpected way. It sounds like, this law has to die to set you free we need to get rid of this husband that's what it sounds like but in verse 4 he says you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so a death has taken place that sets us free but it's not the law because Jesus said the law is never going to pass away And Paul says elsewhere, the law is good, provided you use it lawfully. It's not for the righteous, it's for sinners. Because here it says in verse four, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Now what does that mean, through the body of Christ? Well, we've been seeing in chapter five, we have been united with Christ. And what happened to Adam originally wrecked us, but what Jesus performed has put everything right. That's what all chapter 5 is about. What he did put everything right. So Jesus had two relationships with the law, if I can put it that way. First one was this, complete innocence. That's the word the Bible says. Jesus was innocent. He never broke the law. He said at the end of his life, which of you convinces me of sin? He was perfect. He was innocent. He says, the devil's coming. He's got nothing on me. He was a spotless lamb there was no sin in him so jesus first relationship with the law was perfection he fulfilled the law superbly and then we find this when he comes to the cross and this is the great central truth of the gospel when it comes to the cross the bible says god made him who knew no sin to be sin for us God made him who knew no sin, he was not a sinner, to be sin. When Jesus was on the cross, he took our place, the substitution was made, and God made that righteous one to be the personification of every uh, guilty, law-breaking sinner. He, he, he bore it in himself on the cross, and then the law was thoroughly vindicated, and Jesus died like a sinner. Why have you forsaken me? He took our guilt, he took our shame completely. He died to the law. The law is thoroughly vindicated. God's law has to be vindicated. God's righteousness must be honored. His holiness must be, holy. he must stay holy. He can't say, oh, all right, we'll just forget it. We'll forget No, no, no. This price has to be paid. And Jesus took away our guilt, hallelujah. He took away our shame. And wonderfully, Paul says, you. We're made to die to the law through the body of Christ because what happened to Christ is on our account. It's like it happened to us. You know, the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament, only three times. The phrase in Christ appears dozens and dozens and dozens of times because that's the, Paul's favorite phrase for a Christian, someone who is in Christ that we are in him. What happened to him is reckoned to our account. Hallelujah. So we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Jesus took the full guilt of the law. The law is vindicated. He died once and for all. It's finished. It's done. The price is paid. It's over. That's what the scripture is telling us. We have been set free by that. And so it says in verse 6, you've been released from the law, discharged Lloyd-Jones, the great Dr. Lloyd-Jones, probably the greatest preacher of the last century, uh, he, he, said, he gave this illustration for this verse. He said, it's discharged. It's the same word you'd use if you were a soldier and you completed a, maybe some military service for a couple of years, say, and uh, you know, the sergeant has shouted out you, do exactly what the sergeant tells you, and, uh, and then there comes the moment you're discharged. And, and he, he imagines a soldier strolling over the parade ground with his jacket over his shoulder and got no tie on, and uh, he's just free as a bird. And the soldier, the, the sergeant turns the corner and says, Soldier! He says, ah, Sarge! You think, hey, wait a minute, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. <laughs> Bye, Sarge. And he said, doesn't matter how much the sergeant shouts at you, he can't touch you because you're discharged. You're discharged. You're no longer under. The sergeant, You're no longer under the law. You have been discharged from the law, released from the law, died to that by which you were bound. You can serve now in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Or to go back to verse 4, where we see this marriage relationship, he says this, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. Ah, the marriage imagery is still there. You've died to this rule-keeping husband that you might be joined to, as speaking of marriage now, to him who was raised from the dead. So who are we talking about now? We're talking about Jesus. So now we're no longer married to the we're married to Jesus, and it says this, so that you might bear fruit for God. Now, that that theme, fruit-bearing, has never been mentioned in relation to law. The law can tell you God's holy requirements, but it doesn't make you fruitful. In fact, it says plainly in Galatians 3 and 21, let me just read that to you, Galatians 3, 21, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have come by the law. It's ever so important, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have come by the law, in other words, let's get get into the schools, let's get in among these teenagers that are so confused today, let's tell them, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, let's tell them, tell them the law, just tell them the law, and that will change everything, it will change the nation, let's just get out there, tell them the Ten Commandments, it will change the nation. Paul says, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have come by the law. But the, right, the law doesn't impart life. The law is an impotent husband. He doesn't impart any life. He tells you the holy required, but he doesn't, he doesn't impart life to you. And so Paul says here in chapter 7 and verse 4, you've died to the law that you might be joined to Christ, that you might bear fruit. Ah, I found a potent husband. I found one who imparts life, that I might bear fruit. Jesus said this, abide in me and I in you, you'll bear fruit. He says things like this, my peace I give you. My love, I pour it out in your heart. My joy, I'll give it to you. Jesus is a life-imparting husband. He changes me from the inside. So we no longer serve the letter, we serve in the spirit. We're joined to God who imparts life to us. The law simply told us the rules. The law just said you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that. And so the law brings us an awareness of guilt, an awareness of I fall short of God's holy standard, but it can't change me and so believers need to understand I'm no longer under law Jesus paid the full price for my guilt my shame my falling short he's paid it it's all over he died once and for all it's all over and we have no longer any relationship with the law we're discharged so we can be joined to Jesus who's a life imparting husband you see sometimes you ask Christians how are you getting on? Reigning in life how are you getting on? Mm, a bit up and down bit up and down I want to suggest we're not so much up and down as kind of husband to husband we forget how to relate to God it's like you feel I'm not doing very well sorry Lord I don't feel I'm doing very well I don't feel I've walked with you as I'd like so I tell you what Lord I'll, I'll just go and keep this rule and I'll keep this rule and I'll keep this rule that make you happy won't it It's like saying to your new husband, oh, we're not doing very well. Uh, I'll just build my relationship with my old husband. That'll help, won't it? No. No, Jesus said, I am the way. We don't need a way to the way. He's the way. The old way of relating to God is over. It's finished. We now serve in newness of spirit, not oldness of the letter. That's how that chapter ends. God has done an amazing new thing. He set us free. We're joined to one who imparts life to us, changing us from the inside. God has done this amazing miracle. So we can reign in life. We really do. We we come to him always, even uh, to the church at Laodicea, which had become lukewarm, kind of backslidden. And Jesus, it says, stands at the door. He's knocking. He said, if anyone hears my voice and keeps the rules. No, no, no. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him. I'll sup with him. It's a personal relation. It's not now, you better keep these rules in order. No, 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 no. God's dealt with our guilt. That's a done deal. It's finished. Now we relate to God as a life-imparting husband who puts joy on the inside and peace and life. He is a life-imparter. So we, we can reign in life because God has done these wonderful things for us. Otherwise, we're forever. You see, Paul says in this chapter that he's dealing with condemnation. See, the result of the transgression, verse saying, resulted in condemnation. And we we often yield to that sense, I'm not doing well. And we get this feeling, I feel so condemned. Christians go there. As I say, you come to the end of the year and think, I don't know, I just don't feel I'm doing well. And what we try and do is deal with condemnation by what the Bible calls sanctification. In other words, say this arm represents our sense of condemnation. I feel I'm not doing well. And we try and cover it by, well, I'm praying harder. I'm trying to get rid of condemnation. I'm reading my Bible more. I'm doing stuff to cover this sense of falling short. I am trying harder. And then the, the, uh, the accuser, the Satan, comes to you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm trying hard. You're not, I'm doing, I'm doing better, I'm trying harder. And then you begin to really get disciplined. I'm doing more, I'm doing better. Uh, and then he says, I, And have you heard about Jenny? Now, what about Jenny? She fasts twice a week. Think, oh, no, fast twice a week. <laughs> so now I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm fasting twice a week. Then Satan comes again. He says, how are you doing? I'm doing better, thank you. I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm fasting twice a week. Oh, I expect you're pleased. Yes, I am pleased. I expect you're proud. Yes, I am. Oh, no, I'm proud. <laughs> you can't win. See, a lot of people, they just give up on Christianity because they think, I can't keep it up. That's how they see it. It's a lot of stuff to do. And I can't do it. I can't keep it up. Now that's because they failed completely to see what the gospel is telling us. That isn't the way we relate to God. By trying to get rid of all this kind of guilt. Paul said this. The tragedy of his contemporaries was this. They're trying to establish a righteousness of their own based on law instead of accepting The gift of righteousness that comes by faith. They're trying to establish their own. They're trying to produce stuff that will justify them. But this whole chapter has been saying we're justified through what Jesus did. Just as we were condemned by what Adam did, what Adam did wrecked us. Now, what Jesus has done is he's completely justified us. There's no condemnation. No condemnation. A friend of mine said, when I first saw that in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. He said, wow, I underlined it so much, it went right through to the maps. <laughs> God, there is no condemnation. Otherwise, we struggle, beloved. And things that we, we're trying to do well, and even the things we try and do well. In fact, let me pretend I'm one of, the, one of the wives here, if I may. Right, so, you know, tomorrow morning you get up and say, right, I learned that lesson yesterday, I think. I think I've got there. Right, I'm going to pray this morning. I'm going to get down and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your kindness to me. And Lord, I pray, bless my husband at work today. Um, Lord, make him a blessing. Uh, let, let him get a chance to testify. Lord, let his light shine. Lord, he's such a dear man. And I don't know, he seems so tired lately. And I'm kind of worried for him, really. I, I'd like to, I, t- I know what I need to, I, I'll surprise him. Yeah, I know, I'll get, I'll get a nice meal for him tonight. I'll, I'll really bless him. I'll get him a nice meal. Let me think. I could get down to the market. I could get, yeah, that one. And then you think, oh, I'm supposed to be praying. I'm supposed to be praying, yeah. Um, uh, what are we praying about? Yes, yeah, we've got the missionary supper on Friday. Yeah, the missionary supper when the missionaries are coming. Right, look, look. when the missionaries come on Friday uh, and tell us about what they're doing, uh, bless us, Lord. Ble- uh, let us get uh, motivated um, at the missionary supper. Oh, yeah, the supper. I said, I'd get the quiche. I haven't done the quiche yet. I need to buy some salad. I need, I need to get some salad. Yeah. Oh, I know what I could do. I could go and get the salad. And uh, then at the same time, I could get the meal for my husband as well. That'd be fun. Yeah, I could shoot down there. No problem at all. We'll get the salad. I'll get the quiche. And then Satan comes. Oh, mighty woman of intercession. Are you prevailing in the heavenlies? I think, prevailing in the heavenlies? I'm a useless prayer. Can't pray for toffee. Brain goes out the window. I get, oh, I try, I can't do it. I'm useless. I better get back, back to my Bible reading. Where was I? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, 13 days behind, wasn't I, in my uh, readings. Yeah, what was it? Leviticus chapter four, I got to, I think. Yeah, Leviticus uh, chapter four. Yeah, there it is. Then the priest shall remove all the fat of the bull of the sin offering and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver which he shall, (laughs) stop that, and he, which he shall remove with the kidneys. You see, and then then Satan says, getting a lot out of it, are we? (laughs) You say, say, I don't know what the Bible's all about. I don't understand, I'm a useless Christian. I can't pray, I can't read the Bible. I'm a useless Christian. I shall probably now have a terrible day because I had a bad, quiet time. Anybody recognize this? Woohoo. Anybody recognize this? It's, it's the way some of us think. We think, I've got to keep this performance going. Instead of seeing prayer as a place I get help, it's a thing I have to do. Instead of seeing the Bible giving me, I don't understand it. I'm useless. You see, and we instead of saying, no, no, I'm not useless. I'm in Christ. I'm righteous. He's my Father. That's why some people, when they say when you pray, start with confession, and it clears the deck. Don't do it. Jesus didn't say do that. Jesus said when you pray, say Father, Hallowed be Your name. That's what Jesus. They said teach us to pray. Right. Do this. Father, Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. See, when we start with, Lord, I'm so sorry, you see, you've got an enemy called the devil. You say, I'm so sorry about this, and he'll say, yeah, and that. Oh, yeah, that as well. Sorry about that too. And you kind of take a big spade and dig a hole, and you jump in, and you go, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm such a terrible Christian. And so prayer is painful. It's misery, because it's you-centered, and it's guilt-centered, and prayer was never meant to be like that. When you come to him, praise his wonderful name. He's the father. He's your father. And Jesus told a story about a father. And this father, his prodigal son even, went away, shamed his father by taking an inheritance while he's still alive. It's outrageous. Spent it on prostitutes. I mean, the guy's a waste of time. And then he's coming home, coming home thinking I've blown sonship. But my father does employ servants. I'll never be another son again, but maybe I can get a job with him. He's given up, and he's on his way home, and the father's looking on the horizon, and he sees this boy. He thinks, when, is that, it? is that it? It's him. It's him. And the father runs to him and embraces him, falls on his neck, the phrase says. Falls on his neck, embraces him, puts a new garment around him, puts a ring on him, shoots, throws a party that's the Father you come to. When you come to pray, say, Father, thanks for the party. Thanks for the free gift of righteousness. You you start there, beloved, and we learn to fight the fight of faith by understanding what God has done for us in Christ. We are not starting from some horrible pit. Jesus has dealt with all that. He's taken away my guilt. He's given me righteousness as a gift. So we reign in life. We don't go back and think, I've got to try and earn. No, you haven't. Jesus has done it. That's what chapter six, five is all about. And it's leaning into seven. He's just saying, what about the law then? But chapter five is saying this. Adam made you a sin and now you're in Christ. He's made you righteous. There is no condemnation. Hallelujah. It changes everything. Even in the Old Testament, and we close with one or two illustrations. In the Old Testament, they were told to bring a lamb and present it to the priest but it had to be a perfect lamb. In Malachi, it says this, the end of the Old Testament. It says, you promise a lamb, and you say, well, this one's diseased. That will do for God. This one's messed up. I'll give that to you. He says, God, I hate that. God says, no, you've got to bring a perfect lamb. And so you would come bringing your lamb and present your lamb to the priest, and the priest would take the lamb, and, he, and you're not thinking, oh, I do hope he doesn't notice this is all torn. And I've got all mud down here. You're not, this is irrelevant. All eyes are on the lamb. And the priest looks at the lamb and says, is it blind? No. Is it disease, like the broken bones? No. Any disease? No. And he'll say these words, I find no fault in him. There's nothing wrong with my lamb. You couldn't find anything wrong with my lamb. Pilate said about Jesus, I find no fault in him. There's no, nothing wrong with him. My lamb is perfect my lamb is perfect, I'm accepted, I'm the perfect lamb. I was praying once, this honestly happened to me, I'm praying once and as I'm praying, I felt God reminded me of that Old Testament story where Jacob, who's a bit of a crook, comes to his blind old father, Isaac, a, 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 and hopes that he's going to get a blessing. And the way he's going to get it is he, there's a son that the father absolutely loves, it's called Esau. And Esau is out hunting somewhere. So in Esau's absence, Jacob gets some of his clothes, puts them on, puts skins around his wrists and around his neck, pretends to be Esau, and comes to his blind father for a blessing. And it's almost terrified that, you know, the father will say, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing here? Get out. No, 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 he's coming, he's coming. And I felt God said to me, do not fear as you come to me, hidden in the son that i love because i placed you in the son that i love it's my provision for you i have a son i absolutely love i'm delighted in him but you are accepted in the son that i love it's all in ephesians chapter one we receive we receive every spiritual blessing because we're in the son that he loves hallelujah and i thought god said to me don't fear that you're hidden there. I've put you there. I've provided this covering. I have a son. This is my beloved son. I love him. And we're in him. Hallelujah. We receive the blessings because of Jesus. That's why we praise Jesus all the time. We celebrate him. We think he's marvelous and worthy because he has done it all for us. Hallelujah. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, an old Puritan, he said this. One day he's walking and he's feeling a bit low. And he said, I saw a vision of Christ as my righteousness. He said, I suddenly realized, I profoundly realized, that it doesn't matter how I feel. If I feel good, I can't add to that righteousness. And if I feel bad, I can't take from that righteousness. Because Jesus is my righteousness. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is my righteousness. So when I I wake up tomorrow morning, Jesus is my righteousness. And when I wake up the next morning, he'll be my righteousness. He's always going to be my (laughs) righteousness. We're on a winner. We reign in life, beloved, because of Jesus. Not because of our hard work, not because of how we keep the rules. He has done it. He has done it for us. He's broken it for us. He's done an amazing miracle for us. It says in Hebrews 10, that the priests in the Old Testament could never sit down because they had to offer another sacrifice, another sacrifice, another sacrifice. But it says in Hebrews 10, 14, he has sat down. For by one offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's done it, he's done it. It's finished, a wonderful cry. It's finished, he's declared us, and made us righteous that's why we reign in life by our identification with Jesus that's what Paul is arguing you're no longer in Adam and all the guilt through one man's disobedience verse 19 many were made sinners so the uh, through the obedience of one many are made righteous through what he did hallelujah he's done it he's done it it's a finished work and, and, and you might be saying, well, shall we carry on sinning then? Because God declares us righteous. Well, you'll get to chapter 6. That's how chapter 6 starts. Shall we go? It sounds such a good deal. Shall we carry on sinning? And the King James translates it, God forbid. The word God's not in the Greek. It's by no means no way. Why? Well, you'll read what comes in chapter 6 about how, what God's actually done in freeing us. But chapter five is telling us it's what Jesus did, it's what he did. And it says in verse 14, Adam is a type of Christ, all right? We just didn't read to verse 14, but let me quickly read it, we'll close with this, I won't go on too much longer. 5.14, it says this, Adam is a type of him who's to come. What do you want to mean a type? Well, a lot of Old Testament figures and characters are typical a type of jesus they tell us about jesus so moses is a type of christ a great shepherd who led them out of captivity on he's a great shepherd david is a type of christ he's a son of david he's like another david even people would say noah's ark is a type of christ you need to get into the ark to get safe you get these figures that they are types of christ they tell us about christ Now, we tend not to think of Adam as a type of Christ, because, well, Adam was a sinner. But in what way is he a type? Well, because what happened to him affects us all. He's a type of Christ. What happened to Christ affects us all. So when Adam sinned, he polluted the whole stream. He messed up the whole... He was the human race, and he messed us up. We're born with sin, sin in us. And, and, and the Bible makes this quite clear. His sin makes us a sin. I don't remember being in Adam. I don't remember taking the fruit. I don't remember. But the Bible says we were there. We were in him. He's our representative head. When he sinned, we're all messed up. All right, so what? So he's a type of Christ. We might say, well, I, I, I want to become righteous. No, you're in Adam. Well, I, I'll do what I can. There's some ladies coming down the road. There's some children. Uh, it's a busy road, hold on, hold on it may take you across the road, there you go have a good day, have a good day Oh, uh, somebody, you want to go the other way? or let me help you, uh, hold on, hold on uh, wait a minute, now it's all clear go, over you go, have a good day you know, so if you do all these good deeds all day does that take you out of Adam? no Nicodemus came to Jesus and said you need to be born again you need to be born again Otherwise, all your righteousness is as filthy rags. That's right. So all, you know, all this stuff, you're still in Adam. He's a, Adam's sin. You need to get born again. You need another life. Any, all this good stuff you do, the Puritans said, they are, but uh, sin, well, I forgot the phrase they use. Blow it, sorry. It's <laughs> still sin anyway. You're, you're just trying hard, but you're still in Adam. So he's a type of Christ. So now I'm in Christ. Now I'm born again. Now I've given his righteousness. Hallelujah. So now, so now I go down to the street and there's some little children. And I say, out of the way, I'm going cross. Hallelujah. <laughs> and uh, am I still righteous? Well, are you still in Christ? Yes, I am. I'm still in Christ. So now I'm a righteous granny basher. I have just got, you know, because Jesus, uh, he's a type. What he is, makes me. And that's why this question comes up, well, shall we carry on sinning then? No, we need a whole new load of teaching, which will come in Romans 6. But God has made me righteous as a gift. It's amazing. This is amazing grace. He declares us righteous. We are righteous. We reign in life because of what Jesus did. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for setting us free from endeavor and hard work and trying so hard to make ourselves something in order to be accepted. We thank you, Lord, in Christ. We're delighted in. We're declared righteous. You've set us free. Lord, we want to enjoy the good of it. Lord, bless your word to us. Do us good, we pray. Let us walk from this place celebrating the goodness of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have further questions, the book... God's lavish grace will answer nearly all of them.